Introduction, a totalitarian flavor. There's no way we can trust a computer system built with components made overseas, particularly in China, or assembled in China, let alone both. And that's what we have in our voting system, unfortunately. Colonel Sean Smith, U.S. Air Force, retired. 25-year Air Force veteran and the former director and test manager for the operational testing of complex computer-based weapon systems and a subject matter expert on the security of computer-based election systems, calling into a Tarrant County, Texas meeting. 2005, Beijing, China. As the two buses converged from the left and right into our lane, I wondered whether this road was safe for bicycles. When we'd agreed to tea 15 minutes prior, my family wasn't expecting to navigate a minor highway on two wheels. Our tour guide slipped through the gap. Not far behind were mom and dad who decided to go for it. My brothers and I were forced to brake, and cars behind us honked, not in solidarity, but at least they didn't hit us. Losing sight of mom and dad as the buses zipped the lane shut, I briefly imagined them being crushed. Moments later, materializing out of the cloud of exhaust on that hazy winter morning, were mom and dad and the guide, each still in their saddle. It was 2005, and there were far fewer bikes and many more motorized vehicles in Beijing than I'd recalled in our 1998 visit. That year, just before the People's Uprising in Jakarta prompted Suharto to step aside from the Indonesian presidency after a 32-year reign, on one day's notice, we flew into Singapore. After receiving word that school back in Jakarta was canceled for the year, we decided to visit China for the first time. Seven years later, biking through China's capital city, we navigated the tight alleys connecting traditional courtyard residences in old Beijing, some dating back to the 13th century. Parking next to a red door beneath a slanting tiled roof, our guide knocked and announced us. A smiling elderly woman with wise wrinkles answered and soon we stepped over the threshold and were shown into a small room adjacent the courtyard. Without heating, we did not take off our coats, but here at least the walls sheltered us from the wind's bite. We were all keen for the hot tea soon set before us, but especially thankful was my older brother, whose frozen hands around the cup were eventually thawed albeit painfully. We sat around a low stone table and sipped our tea while our guide translated the woman's story, her family's history, and what life was like in her community, folded into the heart of the city. Having expended considerable physical effort and survived both the elements and highway traffic, we were as travelers taking temporary refuge from a storm, content for simple pleasures. We were soon transported through time by our host's tale. After receiving my high school diploma from the International School of Beijing in 2006, I soon returned to the United States to attend college in Minnesota. In short order, however, I learned that back in the Chinese capital, several thousand traditional homes, just like the one we'd visited, along with their more than 700 years of history, were bulldozed. Ostensibly, this was done to make room for sports venues and other infrastructure for the 2008 Olympic Games, 
But word on the street was that the party was embarrassed by the hutong, which were downtrodden and often occupied by the poor. I learned that the residents at the time of their evictions were not compensated appropriately to the point that they couldn't easily find other places to live. My family had lived in Shuni District, a rural area east of Beijing. The street between our school and the local villages was still covered in autumn by corn kernels laid to dry by farmers. In their communities, my new school friends once treated me to tasty and family noon meal for about a dollar a person. It was not clear how long these rural areas would last as the city expanded eastward toward us. I remember large clusters of residential apartment buildings rising quickly from the landscape. One day webbed by bamboo scaffolding, completed the next. To this day, I wonder how many of the workers who toiled all day and through the night were not Chinese, but North Korean workers on surreptitious loan. The pace of building in the last decade contributed to the ghost city phenomenon, the sociological manifestation of a one-child policy the Chinese ruling class boasted of as the rest of the world shrugged its shoulders and my home country stood side by side with China and North Korea in its late stage abortion stance. While my two brothers and I sat in a tea shop near the Terracotta Warriors Museum in Xi'an, a plate of melon arrived without our request, the server softly murmuring, Sangha Xiongdi, three brothers, as she faded away. Prior to our arrival, I knew little about China. When I shared with my history teacher in Houston, Texas, that my family was moving to Beijing, he remarked, raising his eyebrows, That's interesting. You know, China is a communist country. Actually, I didn't really know what that meant. I thought the term merely referred to an economic system, a contrast to capitalism. At age 17, without the context of communist disasters throughout Earth's recent history, I was going in blind. It would take years for my eyes to be truly opened about communism. But my first glimpses of understanding came in the usual ways, exploring my surroundings, through conversations, in books. With my adventurous mother, I walked the wild, unrestored sections of the Great Wall, and glimpsed how the people lived in the villages nestled against the ancient divider visible from space. On my return in 2008, in broken Chinese, I chatted with migrant workers outside the gates of East China Normal University in Shanghai while they cooked delicious dumplings or slapped dough on the inside of a metal barrel. The bread man traveled daily from outside the sprawling city here standing all day in the cold and sometimes rain, competing with other sellers to sell portions for one or two yuan, 25 cents a piece. I came to learn through my classmate Deanna's research that he was one of approximately 300 million migrant workers throughout the country, at the time equivalent to the entire population of the United States. The international press lauded the country's economic growth but there was a tragic number of people yet to rise out of poverty. Maybe one day those people will be liberated from their totalitarian government, just as we here in the United States must liberate ourselves, reclaiming our government from the failed and corrupt
political establishment. The early 2000s was rough on the people of China, but the near-term past was arguably tougher. Mao's policies devastated the country, and as a result, tens of millions of lives were lost. The chaperone of the 2008 trip, an economics professor who grew up during the Cultural Revolution, shared with me how she and her grandmother hid in the kitchen stove when Mao's Red Guard showed up unannounced and took her father away, never to be seen again. In Ji Xianlin's The Cowshed, Memories of the Chinese Cultural Revolution, I learned how a once respected professor was interrogated by his own students and made to build a holding cell for he and fellow intellectual colleagues labeled class enemies. These were commonplace experiences, normalizing total control of the mind and body for what no one in their right mind, not even Mao, would truly suffer. The total control of the Chinese population was first instantiated in fear, then through elections, establishing a uniparty governance model since the foundation of the Chinese Communist Party, CCP, in 1949. While I didn't have a robust understanding of the comparative political models in question, nor their sinister underpinnings that go well beyond mere politics, I knew that when I left China, it wasn't a place I would ever want to live for very long. Evenings walking our neighborhood, I wondered whether the guards were there for our safety or as our monitors. At least they were friendly, a reminder that many, even today, are good people just doing their jobs. In our living room below two fire alarms, the purpose of the second my family never did surmise, the, te the television regularly went static at any mention of China. Our church services were held in a conference room since there were no churches, and Chinese nationals were forbidden from attending. When I moved back to the United States of America, I had a deeper appreciation for the spirit of freedom central to our founding and identity. But I have come to understand there is a veneer that when peeled back, reveals layer upon layer of deceptions to be first understood and then confronted. When I was renting a car to drive to the MNGOP state convention in Rochester, Minnesota, the man renting me the car, a businessman from Tanzania, described commonplace corruption in his country of origin. He went on to say, In America, corruption is hidden with fancy names. As rumors of mysterious virus spread in early 2020, I immediately sensed a contest of ideas was about to play out. I remembered SARS-CoV-1 from my childhood in Asia. This felt different. An attempt at total control was being instantiated with fear, not only in the United States, but globally. Little did I know that a system-altering election would follow. Before he came before he became President Trump on October 23, 2016, the 45th president said, This is not simply another four-year election. This is a crossroads in the history of our civilization that will determine whether or not we, the people, reclaim control over our government. And when the deeply corrupt are confronted, it is to be expected that like cornered prey, they will fight, and fight dirty, 
to prevent their corruption from coming into the light. By midsummer of 2020, videos documenting the horrors of the Chinese Cultural Revolution were circulating on YouTube. After several weeks of violence plaguing cities around the United States, loudly, though in substance quite loosely, tethered to the death of several United States citizens who the corporate media branded as victims. The corporate-sponsored revolutionaries used the color of these citizens' skin as justification for their looting, pillaging, assaulting, and killing. The corporate media and intellectual class graced these actors with the blessed heritage of peaceful protest. As small businesses were destroyed, communities, many of them populated by racial and ethnic minorities, were gutted and cities burned. Law enforcement largely stood down. No one seemed to bother to check the police reports. Why would they? Instagram and Facebook already told them what happened and whose name, no matter how criminal, felonious, or murderous, to say. The same tactics the Maoists used in the previous century to upend China were on display in my home country, tearing down statues, disgracing public buildings, ridiculing our history, shaming any who would defend it. Where the American version of the Red Army, the black shirts, stopped short was public beheadings, perhaps knowing that the constitutional right to bear arms and form militias would put a swift end to what would be or what could be accomplished with a more measured and insidious approach. Living in Minneapolis, the totalitarian flavor of the air, food, and water I remembered in Beijing was asserting itself in my own backyard. After months of isolation, fear, confusion, anxiety, and frustration, with major sporting leagues around the world shut down, nothing to watch, and nowhere to go, a series of provocative images from the corner of 38th and Chicago in Minneapolis's Powderhorn neighborhood lit a powder keg. The nation, within moments, went from stronger together to irredeemably and systemically racist, with half-truth history populating the minds of the highly educated and the pages of the New York Times. The Maoist attempt at unraveling of the American consciousness was now out in the open. Minneapolis would be center stage of the supposedly anti-fascist to deliver their first blow to the supposedly white supremacist fabric of our nation's past, present, and future. Soon, the epicenter of the charade would ripple out to its final landing place, for the moment, in Portland, where the apparently well-funded black shirts terrorized a city ironically praised for its leftist ideals. But while the nightly news celebrated the mostly peaceful protests that were plainly seen as nothing of the sort, a more profound war was raging across the country in state houses of government and county elections commissions. From Patrick Kolbeck's The 2020 Coup, What Happened, What We Can Do, the preparation phase, where weaknesses are widened and new ones are created, was well underway. The elections commissions, the nonprofits, the state legislatures, judicial permissions, and corporate media swirled in a whirlwind of confusion that unconstitutionally set the election to the tune they wanted to play. By the next summer, 2021, I was working with men and women around the state searching for a way to properly and seriously audit Minnesota's election results and materials, including the machines.
Being part of that group was short-lived, it was infiltrated, but that work got me into the Cyber Symposium in August. That week in Sioux Falls, South Dakota helped me better understand what was at stake. The PCAPs may not have been legit, but Mesa County Clerk Tina Peters, flown to South Dakota by Mike Lundell, is. I still had much to learn and still do. Shortly after, I joined a decentralized national working group facilitated by a former refugee from the communist regime in Vietnam named Huang Chuan, a friend of David and Aaron Clements, who delivered the Otero County and Torrance County presentation, arguably the best examples in county commission settings, as part of their audits of about nine New Mexico counties, which even the Congressional Oversight Committee in Washington, D.C. tried to shut down. On Thursday, June 9, 2022, their dedication led to Otero County, New Mexico County Commissioners voting to remove Zuckerberg drop boxes and Dominion voting machines and other election machines for the midterm election in a unanimous decision. Otero County, New Mexico followed only Nye County, Nevada, and Esmeralda County, Nevada in making a move away from machines joining only a handful of counties and townships nationwide which hand count paper ballots. Days later, the Otero County Commissioners refused to certify their June 7, 2022 primary, in part because of Dominion Voting System's non-compliance with the New Mexico Election Code, a move which perhaps signals the beginning of a lesser magistrate's trend to finally end tyrannical overreach. From the outset, the working group's focus was uncovering the truth about elections state by state, county by county, as well as providing a place where information could be shared about the January 6 prisoners, arguably the first prisoners of war in the battle to expose the coup of November 3rd. A documentary on January 6 and others like it makes the treatment of those prisoners even more heartless. Audio recordings like this one from Jeremy Brown on June 8, 2022, on the 253rd day of his illegal, unconstitutional imprisonment, show you the character and resolve of those prisoners of war. Our communication largely took place on Telegram. People gathered from across the country. Stories could be written about each. Some had gone to work before the 2020 elections or had covered elections for years or decades. Data analysts, engineers, and researchers were among them as well as those who knew in their hearts something was very wrong about November 3rd, 2020. What all of us had in common was a dedication to carrying the burden of truth. Perhaps many of these men and women won't get formal recognition for their sacrifices, but part of my aim in this short book is to provide a window into the work they were doing and continue doing to help the rest of us understand what happened and how we can fix it. Despite two years as a software analyst at Target, it was apparent early on that I did not always follow the technical details of discussions. But in understanding just enough, the door was open for me to translate to non-technical people the core of the machine-related issues. The links and resources sprinkled throughout this book represent dozens if not hundreds of hours of content synthesized from hundreds or thousands of hours of work from various individuals, and probably millions of hours in total if one aggregates the work of people across the country since November 3rd, 2020. I, for one, am extremely grateful for the sacrifices so many have made and for those sacrifices they continue to make.
Jeffrey O'Donnell, a data analyst, was among those I sat in a couple virtual meetings with around September 2021, who in April 2022 shared the following. Not since the Manhattan Project, which developed the atom bomb, have so many smart people worked together to solve such a critical problem. We have hard evidence now of ballot manipulation in the Mesa County database, and this is serving as a Rosetta Stone allowing us to find the same fingerprints in other counties. Vote records and voter rolls have been acquired from dozens of states and counties all over the country, and myriad phantom voters have been identified. The existence of paid ballot meals is now a proven fact. Every method of attack we identify and publish can be prevented, mitigated, or at the very least quickly identified in the next election. In early 2022, I supported local teams forming in about a dozen Minnesota counties benefiting from Rick Weibel's data, strategic thinking, and leadership. My role was mostly to bring my video camera to county commissioner meetings, workshops, or closed-door meetings in Dakota, Sherburne, Wright, and Morrison County. I've spoken in Sherburne County and also recorded open comments in my home county of Hennepin, which still conducts virtual meetings. I listened, asked questions, and learned. These interactions confirmed many concerns I had from reviewing the data and convinced me change was needed. Even if we are not yet aware of an exhaustive list of machine manipulation, there is more than enough to understand that the machines must be turned off. Too many known vulnerabilities, too many unknowns remain. The responses of the secretaries of state around the country has largely been defensive. There is not yet enough sense of urgency from election officials nor county commissioners. Freedom of Information Act, FOIA, requests and public data requests too often lead to unsatisfying answers. In the future, however, the foundation of public information available promptly to the public will set the tone for civic engagement and public accountability. We cannot give up on this vision. A return to hand counting paper ballots is probably the only safe near-term solution to restore confidence in elections. Of course, people can still try to cheat and will try but at least then we won't have both computers and people cheating. The near-term goal is to reduce and minimize fraud. To this end, county elections must be retaken to reestablish local control and oversight. The citizens of, say, Todd County, Minnesota, may not have confidence with the results in neighboring Morrison County, but if they removed machines and voted Amish, and many people in Todd County are Amish, then at least they might have confidence in the results of local races. County commissioners are starting to realize and manifest their power to refuse to certify local elections, which they and their constituents cannot trust on account of them being run on equipment that breaks state election codes. Through work toward audits, reporting on the work of others, and attending county commissioner meetings, I've met Minnesotans from all walks of life, each fighting for their state and ultimately their lives and their children's futures through a dedication to the truth. Too many to name, so here are just a few. People like Rick Weibel, founder of D3 Defense, whose database analysis of the statewide voter registration system 
highlighted that there were more than 700,000 absentee voters reported than documented in the SVRS five days after the MN State Canvassing Board certified the election. People like Terry Dickinson, who has worked tirelessly arranging and promoting Rick's events and activating others in her community. People like Susan Chagrin Smith, who filed a petition, case number A20-1486, to correct errors and omissions under Minnesota Statute 204B.44 before the MN State Canvassing Board certified the election on Tuesday, November 24, 2022. People like Edwin Hahn, who was one of only seven people in Minnesota to file an election contest for the 2020 election that went all the way to the Supreme Court. People like Jeremy Pecula, who helped to bring Captain Seth Keschel to the Brainerd Exchange, speaking alongside Rick Weibel and Susan Smith, set up a meeting between us and his county commissioners and election officials, and is running to be the next Morrison County Commissioner in District 3. People like Carrie, excuse me, Kari Watkins, running for county commissioner in Sherburne County. People like Pastor Ben Davis, also running for office as a state representative, who spoke at multiple county commissioner meetings in Crow Wing County, leading to the commissioners voting 4-1 to one to ask Secretary of State Steve Simon to do an audit of Crow Wing County's 2020 election, which was declined. People like Kim Bauer, who did not stand down after it appeared her school board election in 2021, was stolen from her in ISD 196, still unresolved more than half a year later, despite multiple meetings with county election officials in Dakota County. And people like Robin Sylvester, who helped to organize a door-to-door and digital canvas of parts of 30 Minnesota counties, also running for Crow Wing County Board. There are many more who deserve credit, and some of their work will be included in the pages that follow. In mid to late April 2022, I decided to run for Secretary of State in Minnesota and made the announcement on May 3rd, standing on the back of a pickup truck before joining Patriots urging their Sherburne County Commissioners to have a public hearing about their electronic voting systems. Why am I doing this? To continue sharing what I've learned about what happened in 2020 and how we can heal our sick election system. At the time, the decision felt partially absurd. What good would it do to run in a system that was unfair and lacked transparency? I thought to myself, they will probably just rig it against me. In my childhood, I saw millions go to the streets in Jakarta, Indonesia, which influenced the then three-decade president, Suharto, to resign. And yet, this is a different place and time. We can do this by the book. That book now includes concepts like the lesser magistrates, an output of which can be seen in county commissioners exercising their power to refuse to certify local elections. In the recommendations chapter, you will find detailed steps every Minnesota county can take right now. We cannot afford to wait for the primary or the general election to make changes happen. By then, our county commissioners should be well aware of their powers and the expectations their constituents have of them. As uneasy as I felt about running for Secretary of State in Minnesota, I was also eager to take the opportunity set before me. 
if I hadn't decided to run, a few things would not have happened. Number one, I wouldn't have been excluded without a satisfying reason by the MNGOP from the Secretary of State endorsement process at the Rochester State Convention on May 12th and 13th, 2022, nor learn that others are being pressured not to speak with me or invite me to events. Number two, I wouldn't be writing this short free book or recording the audiobook. Number three, in doing so, I wouldn't have learned as much as I have from writing it. If I've done my job well, readers will eagerly forward the PDF and MP3 files of this book to their friends, family, and coworkers. Everyone, even those who've shown less curiosity about whether our elections are fair or not, forgive them for they know not what they do. Each of us has the right to know the truth in a timely manner. Without good information, it is harder to make decisions or to take decisive, impactful actions. The decision to run for office has also helped my overall approach. Where in the past, I led with frustration and anger, now I seek solutions and aim to help everyone learn and improve while also holding everyone to a high standard. That goes for me too. Like hiring managers interviewing candidates, those who may vote for me deserve to first see a body of work from the past year in particular. And if I do get to serve as a Secretary of State, I want to have already built relationships with county-level election officials and commissioners who will rely on me to do my job and help them to do theirs once in office. I want to show them how it is I work to get things done. This has already changed my interaction with election officials, whether in person or on the phone, and yet they should know that I will ask for excellence and also courage. Previously, I approached matters primarily from an investigative approach, but now I balance that mindset with an encouraging attitude, which I believe will inspire change, change in hearts, and then change in the process and system. There's another reason to adjust, which is based on the conversations with many people inside and outside the election process. That is, in my opinion, many election officials are still learning about the vulnerabilities in the suite of electronic voting equipment in use by their county's election process. After all, most county election officials are not cybersecurity experts. Few of us are in the wider populace, which makes discussions of much of this subject matter even trickier. Short of removing machines from the system, only a cybersecurity expert would understand how to mitigate the risk inherent in the modern electronic voting system. What we know and what will be shown in documentaries like Selection Code is that those who control the machines control the results. So long as we have a complex modern electronic voting system coupled with restrictive audit-related election laws, I will not feel any confidence whatsoever that my vote was counted. Do you? It is a major victory for the enemy if we were to make many reforms to our election process, but still keep our current modern electronic voting system as is. Do not be fooled by concessions that distract you from the goal. Control through machines. From the 100,000 foot view, elections are simply a control mechanism and also a critical vector of attack against a nation state. Here in the United States, we arguably made this easier not only by allowing private entities like Dominion or ESNS or Heart InterCivic 
to provide the majority of our electronic voting equipment, but also by outsourcing some of the coding involved in that critical infrastructure to places like Serbia in the case of Dominion source code as proven by the name of a Serbian developer found in the code. Here in the United States, if by subverting elections you can routinely install candidates up and down the ballot, then a county, state, and country can over time be usurped without firing a bullet. Very useful in a country where citizens are very well armed. In the digital age, this can be done through machine code invisible to election judges, poll challengers, and election officials. Meanwhile, the public, myself very much included, could be manipulated and poisoned for years or decades through government-run schools, social media, and especially intelligence agency-designed influence operations to think all is well in our constitutional republic, when in fact we were on course to lose it and may indeed have lost it for good, unless we act decisively. Every attitude, intent, and action shapes the world we live in. Of course, maintaining control by subverting elections is not new, even if this important fact is not widely understood. In 2010, at the IEEE International Conference on Computing, Control, and Industrial Engineering in Wuhan, China, a paper was presented titled, Research on PID Control Parameters Tuning Based on Election Survey Optimization Algorithm, which discusses improvements offered by the Election Survey Optimization Algorithm above and beyond the Ziegler-Nichols tuning method of 1942. Proportional Integral Derivative, PID, controllers are used for many practical applications from tuning your house's temperature to the accurate production of cheese in a plant. Was a similar algorithm potentially used in the November 3rd, 2020 general election? In 2004, Sequoia, acquired the next year in 2005 by Smartmatic, which has software running on the latest Dominion ESNS and Heart Machines, was used to run the Venezuelan presidential recall election, even though it was the company's first time providing machines for an election. Was this a test run of their hardware and software for future elections? Before electronic voting machines decades prior, we know that elections were a big business as evidenced by this $20 million contract in 1973. Twelve years prior, in 1961, this airtel to the director of the FBI I found while browsing the JFK files on Project Apario suggests overt election subversion. A dozen years earlier, in Robert A. Caro's autobiography, Working, Caro stresses the importance of facts being made available to the public. In 1948, at the 11th hour, 200 votes were found for Lyndon B. Johnson, propelling him into the Texas Senate by a margin of 87 votes in a race where more than a million votes were cast. Carroll found the man responsible for carrying this out, Louis Salas, who invited him into his home where he admitted to Carroll what he had done and that he lied under oath about what he had done. He gave Caro a manuscript describing his actions. Caro writes, Thanks to that manuscript, 
It would not be necessary for me to write. No one will ever be sure if Lyndon Johnson stole it. He stole it. That was in 1948. Like Caro, I couldn't look away from what I was seeing in late 2020 and 2021. In Patrick Kolbeck's election coup framework, the preparation phase, creating weaknesses in laws and rules, had led into the main attack phase, where the mail-in ballot weakness was exploited, followed by the backup attack phase, where votes were injected electronically, and finally, the defense phase, where election evidence was covered up or destroyed. Even despite the lack of cooperation from elected officials, locally people like Rick Weibel showed me so much evidence from Minnesota that I couldn't stand aside. From others around the country sharing information with me, I gradually learned how our elections were supposed to work and how in practice they could be undermined. The election theft in 2020 was obviously coordinated. If exploitation like this has been happening for a long time, why only now was it so obvious? How was it that I so far lived my life believing my vote counted, but now could not so easily answer that question? That will take some time to unpack, but based on the full frontal attack upon President Trump's character and attempts on his life, it was clear from the enemy's perspective another four years of Trump could not be tolerated. So, they threw the kitchen sink at him come election time. Would things have been better if Biden had not been allowed to be installed? Mike Lindell's opinion at the cyber symposium was this. Thank God, because otherwise we wouldn't know about the machines. One thing is clear. From national Rasmussen polls and conversations I've, I've had personally, since November 3rd, 2020, tens of millions of Americans, if not more, have asked or are now beginning to ask, does my vote count? It's only a matter of time before that number goes north of 100 million and almost everyone curious to know the facts will have the chance to understand the sobering implications. If our election officials, counties, and secretaries of state cannot show, 19 months after November 3, 2020, that the computerized election management systems used to produce election results actually do so without error, then citizens in increasing numbers will continue to lose trust in the current system. Jeffrey O'Donnell puts it well in the introduction to his Mesa County No. 3 report, highlighted in the forthcoming Selection Code documentary. If Americans' votes are to be recorded and counted by machines, every aspect of those machines' operation, configuration, and data must be recorded, immediately available at no cost or administrative burden to citizens, and their independent examiners and confirmed 100% accurate through that independent verification. The absence or shortfall of any of these three imperatives, recorded, available, and independently verified, should immediately cause the public to distrust both the purported results from those machines and also anyone who insists that they accept those results. This book will follow the organization of the four phases of an election coup put forward by Patrick Kolbeck in the 2020 coup, currently the best book on this topic, and exerted at the end of this one. Number one, preparation. Create weaknesses and shape the landscape through laws, procedures, rules, 
electronic systems, and influence operations. Number two, main attack. Exploit the greatest weakness, absentee, and mail-in ballots. Number three, backup attack. Execute contingency plans such as injecting votes digitally. And four, defense. Cover up or destroy evidence of the main attack and backup attack phases. These phases will provide the framework to put Minnesota's 2020 election in context. In the imminent and immediate future, machines will become unacceptable to the majority of Americans. I predict that in a similar way to how 2000 Mule showed how orchestrated ballot trafficking was nationally and made it easier to talk about, the Selection Code documentary will open the door to a deeper understanding of how the machines select candidates at the local, state, and national level. Then, hand-counting paper will be even more heavily demanded. Once trust is restored in hand-counting paper ballots that are 100% auditable, maybe only then should alternatives to hand-counting paper looked into. But let's do this patiently and persistently, one step at a time. Read this book and share it with anyone who doesn't yet understand how machines and malicious code determine the outcome of elections in our state and country. Keep in mind, this is only an introduction to the topic, as I too work daily to learn more of the details. This book is written using a service called LeanPub, which allows the book to be regularly updated. So check back here for the latest version. Every Minnesotan deserves to know the truth. Without this information, how can the public react? And how can we hold elected officials accountable? Once the information is available, we can react. And we can hold elected officials accountable and return to a state of government of, by, and for the people. Once the light is shown, deception and lies will no longer hold any power over us. In the domain of elections, it's not who votes or who counts the vote, it very well may be who codes the vote that matters most. May we all be given the wisdom, strength, and discernment to carry the burden of truth. May we all with great patience endure these trials. And may we all with active persistence run the race put before us.